I mean, uh, back there on the computer is Betty, who's from Germany. Well, if we were in Germany and they had a German Memorial Day would, and they talked about it in church, would we feel weird? Like, that's kind of weird. Why are they talking about their dead? It's military, you know. But so it's always we're, we're called to be really good citizens of the countries we're in. But when it comes to patriotic holidays, I always try to think, hey, what would it be like if we were in China now as Christians or Germany or, you know, other parts of the world? So it's always that tension of how do we honor our, honor our government because we're citizens of the government, but not exalt it in that sense? And how do we honor those veterans, in this case, in world days, who've, who've died for American freedom? But it's not really a function of the church in, in a sense, other than we should be really good citizens. And we're to honor those in leadership over us, obey the laws and things like that. So, like I said, with these kind of holidays, uh, we do want, I, I'm, I'm a real, I love World War II stuff. And I've, I, when I read something about veterans and things like that, it makes me real feel emotional. But at the same time, I often think, okay, if we were Christians in China right now, how would we feel about honoring government people when we're really here to honor Jesus. So it's just that tension. Yes, we honor because we want to be good citizens. Um, so, but we're probably not going to, at least I haven't checked right now, we're probably not going to sing the national anthem as part of communion. So I grew up in a church where we did. We sang the national anthem every patriotic weekend. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it was kind of that tension of, okay, so how, how do you deal with that? So anyway, right, we'll go from that straight into uh, Calvin and Hobbes here. All right. Um, there's always something profound about Calvin Hobbes. Here's the first three frames of this comic. He says to his friend Susie, what grade did you get? And she says, I got an A. And he says, really? Boy, I'd hate to be you. I got a C. And she says, why on earth would you rather get a C than an A? And his response is, I find my life is a lot easier the lower I keep everyone's expectations. Life is easier if I lower my expectations, is what he's saying. Now, I'm not, the passage we're going to look at today is not encouraging us to lower our expectations, but maybe reset the expectations. Because sometimes we have an expectation, not just of life, but of God, of what Jesus came to do. And if it's not fitting that expectation, it rattles us and we start questioning either God or questioning our own commitment to God, and we're not sure what to do, but the problem probably is expectation. I mean, those of you who are parents, you realize sometimes you, you want to kind of manage your kids' expectations about what we're doing on vacation or whatever else, because there can be disappointment in all kinds of directions if the expectation isn't clear. So we're going to talk today about some things Jesus said about our expectations, about what he thought, what he saw happening in the future. So if this is the last Sunday in a series from the last, I don't know, month that I've been calling Seeing Jesus, and it's been from the Gospel of Mark. Um, today we're finishing up in Mark 13. We did the other chapters during the Easter, Easter time, so we've really done all of Mark in terms of uh, getting a picture of Jesus. And what I've said all along is I, I want us to see Jesus as the Bible says that he is, not that we think he is, not that the culture tells us he is, or not that we even hope he is, but what does it really say about him? Who is he? And it, here's some of the things we found, and I'll just read these. Here's some of the things we found over the study of the Gospel of Mark, and that's this, that Jesus is explosive, he's fierce, he's focused, he's confrontational, controversial, and supernatural, he's truthful, blunt, and disruptive, he's sensitive, compassionate, and incredibly kind, 
He's wildly free, absolutely holy, full of truth, full of mercy. He's misunderstood, he's rejected, he's betrayed, he's mocked, he's tortured, he's crucified, he's raised from the dead. He heals people. I mean, he's a unique, there is no one like Jesus has ever walked the earth. And of course we know that, that's why we're in church. But in a sense, when, you, when I read this list, and I read it even for me as much as it is for you, it's like he is the most incredibly powerful, strong, truthful, but sensitive, kind, always touching people that you weren't supposed to touch, blind people, lepers, interacting with people they weren't supposed to interact with. And there's nothing about Jesus that fits the norm. And that's wh- it's what I hope we always see about Jesus, that he, we, can't ever, we can never push him into the mold we want to be pushed into. So this chapter 13, I'm just calling it this. I don't always title sermons, but I'm calling this Watch Out. Jesus tells us what to expect in our future. And uh, everybody has, and I haven't, uh, I don't do this regularly if you're new here, but I have, all, I have the whole chapter printed out there. And I, there's a reason we're going to do that. So if you, ha- if you don't have one, maybe you can find, make sure somebody has one. And everybody should also have a yellow pen, a highlighter, which I want back, okay? So, but there's a reason I, I want to do this because part of, just to give you some way I think about when I kind of read scripture, when I work on sermons or whatever, but just when I read scripture, sometimes when we read the Bible, it can come, it, it can feel like, eh, I'm not really getting anything out of it, or it feels like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 wah. Other times you read it, and this is the experience uh, that I have sometimes, I wish it happened, I read it and, and things just kind of, I don't want to say jump off the page, but almost become highlighted to me. It's like, wow, I never saw that before. And I've read the Bible for years, and some of you have too. But it seems like there's always things that God can show us that's new. So I want to talk about some things in this chapter that really kind of struck me and kind of that really caught me off guard, but in a good kind of way that helps reshape my expectations, all right? So let me just read the first part here. I'm going to read the first couple verses, and then we'll uh, jump into some other stuff. Now, just remember, this is Jesus... He's in Jerusalem. This is toward the end of his ministry. This is the week he's going to get betrayed, arrested, tortured, crucified, and raised from the dead. So he's, he's been up in the Galilee region, which is the northern part of this. That's where he grew up, and that's where he healed his ministry, healing, touching people. Blah, blah. And then the la- lately he's been down in Jerusalem, in the southern part of Germ- uh, Germany, Israel. <laughs> I have Germany on my mind because Betty's back there. He's been in the southern part of, of uh Israel in Jerusalem, where there's been a lot of confrontation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He cleared the temple. He, he picked fights. But he does those things not because he's a confrontational, fight-picking kind of person. He does those things because what, what the Pharisees and religious leaders have set up is a system that keeps ordinary people from experiencing God in the ways that God designed them to. So Jesus' activity is not because he's a warlord. It's because he loves those who feel like God is distant from them. They've been kept out of the the system. Because the temple and all the things the Pharisees were doing, all the laws they'd set up and the regulations were keeping ordinary people like us uh, disconnected from God. So Jesus was doing, he was doing that because he's passionate about us connecting with God. He's, con- he's concerned about broken and desperate people connecting with God. He's concerned about people who don't think they're good enough connecting with God. So Jesus' passion for 
picking fights with the Pharisees or flipping tables and dumping coins out is not because uh, he's an American version of, he's a Christian version of Rambo or whatever. He, it's because he's passionate about us connecting with God. Anything that stands in the way, he has no tolerance for because he loves us connecting with God. So here's the first couple of verses, and we'll talk a few things here. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Now, just stop for a second. Go to this picture here. This is a rendition of what the temple might have looked like. It took about one-sixth of the whole area of the city of Jerusalem at that time. You can't really see maybe, but then the very bottom front, you can see the opening gate, so you can see the massive size of this whole complex. I mean, it's not, this is, this is a model, so this is what, you know. But it was a massive, that court area, which is probably, you know, three football fields on each side, is just massive. That's where he was flipping tables. This would have been packed during the Passover festival. The rest of Jerusalem was behind it, and this is, and so the temple is that part on the inside, and it was magnificent. I mean, the stones in the temple were, uh, okay, they were twice me high, 12 feet high, probably about 10 yards wide, not 10 feet, 10 yards wide, and probably five or six yards this way. So imagine stones twice as high as me, 10 yards wide, five yards this way, and those were the stones. I mean, if this building was still around today, it would definitely be one of the natural ones. It would make the pyramids seem almost like nothing. It was an incredible, incredible structure. So, and the disciples... They're walking out with Jesus, and one of them says, we don't know which one, it says, one of them says, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. This was an impressive, there was impressive stone and gold all over the place. So if you've been to impressive buildings, whether it's Washington, D.C., or you've been to Europe or Egypt or whatever, think of the thing, like, wow, it's impressive. This was impressive. This would be something we'd all be like, wow, how'd they build that? Look at all that. So they're kind of like in awe, having this wow factor. And Jesus kind of breaks the mood a little bit here. He says, Jesus replied, yes, look at all these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. Probably not the reaction the disciple who said it was thinking Jesus would give him. He's like, wow, look at that. Look, this is incredible. This is incredible. He's like, yeah, they're, they're all going to be, it's going to be demolished. And they're probably like, what? Later, Jesus sat in the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple, and Peter, James, and John, and Andrew came to him privately because they've probably been wondering about, what, why did he say that? And they asked him, tell us when all this will happen. What sign will show you that these things are about to be fulfilled? Because he's basically said, this is going to all come crashing down. Because it had a real permanent feel. I mean, stones that big don't just crash down because heavy winds. It had something else... And they're thinking, well, what's, what's going to happen? What, what's happening? Jesus, wh why are well, not just when, but why? What, this is all going to be demolished? And then the rest of this chapter is Jesus talking about kind of some of the hard things that's going to happen. This would have been like A.D. 30-ish. Uh, just 40 years from then, the temple would be destroyed. Uh, the Emperor Titus comes into Jerusalem in warfare 
and they burn everything down, and they crush the temple and remove it stone by stone. It's demolished. And that's and so Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. It's not, and it's not so much the temple's demolished, but Jesus is saying what's going to be dismantled is this system of religion that has become something that it wasn't supposed to be. Now, here's what I want you to do with your yellow pens. Uh, just do that with me. Every one of these, there's a box that has box around words. And let's go through it. And when I say it, I want you to highlight Because this is how, when I was reading this, it was all these, what felt like me was negative downer terms Jesus was using. I mean, you'd think Jesus would be kind of like positive. Here we go. All right, so completely demolished. Highlight that. Uh, down in the fourth paragraph down. Deceived. They will deceive many. He's talking about false teachers are going to be coming. Then wars and threats of wars. Highlight that. He said that's what's going to be coming too. He said this is all that's going to be happening. And then down, nation will go to war against the word war again. Right below war, the word earthquakes. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines. Highlight famines. This is only the first of the birth pains. So highlight birth pains. Those of you women who have given birth know birth pains aren't comfortable. All right. Next paragraph down. When these things begin to happen. So they said, when's this all going to happen? When's this all going to come tumbling down? When they happen, uh, you'll be handed over the local council and beaten in the synagogues. Highlight beaten. That's one of those words that stuck out to me when I first read this. Wow. That's not real positive talk there, Jesus. Uh, you will stand trial. Highlight stand trial. Down later in that paragraph, when you're arrested and stand trial. So they're beaten. They're stand trial. The next paragraph down, they'll be betrayed. Brother will betray brother to death. Father will betray his own child and children will rebel against their parents. So betray, betray, rebel. Cause them to be killed. Highlight killed. Everyone will hate you because you are my followers. Highlight hate. And again, this is not, this is not, if you or I were to write the Gospels, this is not what we'd want here. We want a little more positive. I do, at least. All right, the next paragraph. Uh, those, those of you must flee to the hills. Uh, how terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers. So he's saying it's going to get nasty. All right, next slide. Uh, there will be greater anguish. Uh, it's a time of calamity. Next part down, false messiahs, false prophets, deceived, and darkened. All right, so if you put all those, put all those words together, what Jesus is saying to the disciples, and if you just look at the whole, and I, so I, I highlight mine that way, and I'm just like, when, it, when you look at it, it's like, wow, that's, that's kind of heavy stuff. So, First point is this. I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. Expect hardship. False teachers, people that might try to deceive you. Expect, perse expect persecution. Expect calamity. Because they're asking, when's, when's this end of time, this transition of reality going to happen? Because they knew Jesus was talking about when the kingdom, his kingdom would be established and but he's using some pretty strong language here. It's like, there's going to be people trying to deceive you. And he's talking to the disciples. And if you know the book of Acts, you realize the book of Acts has a lot of this stuff. Some of these very disciples were killed, beheaded, beaten. Just, this would have been like just months later. But it seems as if Jesus, he's not saying... 
you know, expect your life is going to be awful. But he is saying, hey, part of reality of following Jesus, because they, they didn't know yet, too, the next few days, Jesus would be experiencing great hardship, being arrested, betrayed, mocked, beaten, crucified. But there's something about the suffering in the path of Jesus that he's telling the disciples, this is something you need to realize will, could be part of your life as well. Expect hardship. Now, <coughs> when I first read this and was highlighting these, my internal reaction was, I'm not sure that's what I signed up for when I decided to follow Jesus. I, I, you know, I didn't, some of these words are a little bit too strong for me. I didn't, I didn't see that in the contract when I decided to follow Jesus. And it was interesting years ago, and I'm not, I was at a certain situation where somebody was sharing their testimony, and they said, um, they were trying to convince people to follow Jesus, and this person said, when I was a younger kid, I always wanted to be a fireman, have a red pickup truck, have a beautiful wife, and a dog in the back. And he said, and I decided to follow Jesus 10 years after that, and now I'm a fireman, I have a red pickup truck, I have a beautiful wife and a dog in the back. That's why you should follow Jesus. And I'm sure he was well-intentioned. My internal reaction was, I, I don't think that's the gospel. I don't think Jesus comes to say, your life will be all you wanted it to be. In that sense, in that sense, in the material, this worldly sense, if you follow Jesus, because I... You know, then you put this passage down. It's like, that's, I don't think, I, I don't see red pickup truck, beautiful wife, dog in the back, fireman. I, I'm not saying Jesus, the scripture does say he gives us the desires of our hearts. He does say he'll fill us with abundant joy and incredible peace that the world can't ever take away from you. But he doesn't say to the disciples, this is easy street when you follow me. If anything, he's telling them, it's going to be hard. You're going to have things come in the way, bump you around, hardship, persecution. Expect those things. Don't, don't create them to happen. Don't be a jerk and then call it persecution because you're being a jerk. But if you're following Jesus and you en engage hardship, or if there's things happening around you, and he says wars, famines, all these things, because those are things that he says, those are going to happen, but the time still isn't coming. And when he says the time, it's, they knew it was kind of this end of the end of time. Because even in the Jewish culture then, the Jewish religion, they believed there was some, the day of the Lord was going to come. That's what they were asking. They knew something was going to happen. So Jesus is saying, these things will all happen before that even happens. So he was saying, it's going to be hard. And some of these things are going to be challenging. But don't, no problem, don't, don't let it rock you is kind of what he's saying. And then the second thing is this. In the, if you look over on, uh, starting with verse 26, and this part of the chapter I kind of circled in my, on my paper. It's like, it says, Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of great power and glory. So this is, this is, what, he, this is what will happen. The disciples says, when will all this happen? Well, this is when it's going to. Everybody's going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. He will send out his angels to gather the chosen ones from all over the world and the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. One of the things we don't talk about in churches as much as we did when I was growing up is, is, Jesus just said he's coming back. So one of the things I said, we expect Jesus to return. The Bible teaches that Jesus, sometime at the end of time of earth, uh, the day of the Lord, 
Jesus actually comes back to the earth. And this is one of those things, if you think about it, honestly, it is kind of a weird factor thing. Like, ah, the weird meter. Like, God, he's somebody, somebody's coming back on the clouds and supernatural. Sounds like Lord of the Rings or superhero or something. But the Bible teaches not just here. Jesus is saying this, so if Jesus is saying it, it that's kind of put a lot of weight there. But also in the other First Corinthians, the very last statement in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John says, uh, you know, even so, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, will you come? So the, they all had a strong belief, because Jesus taught them, that Jesus will be coming back to the earth. And that will be the day where things begin to change. And again, the church I grew up in, I, we talked about that like all the time. I mean, I, w- I remember one time, uh, I remember one time, it, sometimes it was talked about like a, as a sense of fear, though. Because I remember one time I couldn't, I, I was a kid, I couldn't find my mom in Target. And I thought Jesus had come back and she was taken with him and I was left behind. I mean, so it's kind of like this. It's not necessarily, Jesus isn't saying this in terms of, you know, be afraid, make sure you're, of course, he wants people to follow him and trust him. But he's saying he's going to come back with power and glory. And we should expect that to happen. We can figure out, people try to figure out days and times. I talked to somebody about two years ago, McDonald's on Walnut Street, South Walnut, who was convinced that God had showed them from the Bible when Jesus was coming back. And I just told him, I said, you know what? Even in this passage, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus said, I don't even know when that day is going to come. So the, the, the practice that people have of trying to figure out dates and times and this is when he's going to come back and this is all these, it, it seems like Jesus is saying to some degree this is kind of a futile attempt. But be ready. Expect him to come back. Expect him to come back. He is coming back. A little side note too. This is interesting. Um, the Koran, the, the, the Muslim scriptures or whatever, which we don't believe are from God, but it's interesting nonetheless. The Quran teaches that Jesus comes back to the earth. And I remember when I was talking to this Muslim friend of mine, I says, not Muhammad? Oh, no, no, Muhammad does not come back to the earth. Jesus comes back to the earth. And I said, what does the Quran say Jesus comes back to the earth to do? And he says, Quran does not say. But I thought it was kind of fascinating that somehow in the midst of all the other uh, inaccurate untruthful things the Quran says it says Jesus is coming back but the Bible teaches it clearly Jesus is coming back and some time will change because he comes to gather those who are the elect uh first Corinthians talks about even those in the grave who have given their hearts to Jesus become resurrected and there's still there's still you know we don't know all the details we know he's coming back and Jesus is saying to the disciples in the midst of all this calamity and persecution hardship this is not the end of all things. And then the last thing I want you to kind of shape your expectation is this. Go to the next slide. Expect to see with the eyes of your heart. Because one of the things I found fascinating with this passage was she says, and if you look on the left side, verse 13, she says, when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at the time, for it will not be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. There's a sense there that, okay, in the midst of all this, and earlier on, up in verse 7, he says, don't panic. I'm reading that, and I'm like, wait a minute. Persecution, betrayal, famine, war, blah, 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 and you're saying don't panic? But he does say, don't panic. 
And he says, don't worry what you're going to say when you're put on the spot. Because just listen to what God tells you because it will be the Holy Spirit speaking in you. And then numerous times, and I didn't, I didn't want to mess with multicolored pens on your chairs, but I have marked in red in verse 9 the word watch out, in verse 23 the word watch out, in verse 20, uh, 33 be on guard, stay alert, and then the very last paragraph, watch, watch, and watch. So there's a sense, this, Jesus, his big word to these disciples is, be on guard and watch. Now he's not, and, I, and what I'm saying, I'm saying watch because the, the sense of watch here really is the eyes of the heart. It's not just watch around and see what's going on, but it's be aware uh, and watch for what God is doing around you. And here I am, I'm, I'm going to, because it fits, I'm going to tie it into this experience in God's study we're asking to do. Because one of the primary pr premises of this study, which is scriptural, is God's always at work. He's always working around you. And part of our, as we mature and understand, we can start to see what God's doing. We can see where Jesus is showing up in our lives around us. We can see if Jesus is showing up in a conversation you're having with a friend. We can see where Jesus shows up. I mean, I was just talking to uh, one of the dads of my son's 12-year-old baseball team. And when he found out I was a pastor, he said, you know, I've been, my son's been asking a lot of questions about religion. He's made want to get back to church. And it wasn't a conversation I was expecting to have watching a 12-year-old baseball game. So you never know when those kind of, so you kind of watch. You know, but he, Jesus is saying, well, watch. Watch to see. Uh, watch what's happening. Don't let it throw you. Don't panic. And, of course, then I read this, too, and I thought, okay, he says, don't worry. Don't panic. Watch, be alert. And the question I was left with, and I'll leave with you, is how do you become that kind of person? Because it doesn't just happen overnight. It is something that we cultivate by spiritual habits, by things like this experience of God, by reading the Bible. We, you cultivate a sense of spiritual eyesight. You cultivate that. It doesn't just happen. He says, watch, and don't worry, and don't panic. And in those situations, you're going to find... You're gonna, we all find ourselves in some kind of crisis moment spiritually. It may, be a little, it may be the crisis moment of you're in a tense conversation with your spouse and you want to respond with anger and hurt, but you know the Spirit is asking you to respond with forgiveness and grace. That's a crisis moment. Are you going to let Jesus show up in that? And so there's all these crisis moments. Now, in this case, he's talking about when you're arrested and standing before the courts and people are persecuting you and your kids are betraying you or whatever. How you deal with crisis moments now in your life spiritually when the Holy Spirit's trying to get his word in is going to be how you deal with crisis moments when they get more intense, which they could and they might in some of our lives. Jesus says they will. So don't discount the small crisis moments that you may be encountering now, the crisis moments of what does God want me to do with my money? How do I respond to this person who's hurt me? What do I say to this, to my child who's disappointed me? Or how do I deal with this issue? So don't discount the little moments that we think are little, the crisis moments now when the Holy Spirit's wanting to speak into our lives. He's wanting to tell us what to say and do. Because that's how you cultivate so we can become the kind of people that when calamity happens in the way Jesus says could very well happen in our lives, that we don't panic, um, we don't worry, and we let the Holy Spirit speak to us. And I'll finish with this passage, which 
um, was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, which um, as we finish this with Jesus, and again, we're not finishing Mark in the right place because we kind of back, did some backtracking there in Easter. But it seems like one of the big lessons of the book of Mark is how do we, that Jesus was always trying to even teach the disciples, how do we see with the eyes of our heart? We believe, and we said this before at Exodus, we believe the invisible world is just as real as the visible. And part of the lesson Jesus is always trying to tell the disciples is you've got to see differently. It's not just what you see is not always, there's another reality happening. God's always moving. And so how do we become those kind of people? Because Jesus wasn't talking about how to make religion better. He was teaching people how to see God, how to see Jesus and what he's doing in your life. And so this is, a, this is a, the prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians, but I think it's an appropriate way to end, not just today, but even the whole book of Mark. And um, actually, why don't you read this with me? Let's all read it out loud here. This is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus. Essentially, it's the spirit of God's desire for us, too. Here we go. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of which he has called you, the riches of his glory and inheritance in the holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So Paul's prayer is, I want your eyes of your heart to be enlightened because you can see hope and you can see the power of God in your life. And he likens that power to the power that resurrected Jesus. So he's saying that power is available to you in your life. And you think of the powerful things Jesus did throughout the book, Gospel of Mark and then he told his disciples, you'll be doing this too. So it's hope and power that God is saying that Paul is praying for, the Holy Spirit wants for each of us, to be, that, that God would open up the eyes of our heart. And that doesn't come through willpower. It comes through a submissive spirit to the Holy Spirit to help us become those kind of people. So let's uh, close our eyes and pray. God, I, do, I pray as well um, for each person here, each, um, each woman and man up here, but even the small children downstairs and the babies downstairs, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. I pray for six-month-old babies downstairs, you would open the eyes of their hearts. I pray for uh, Neff Babcock, that you would open the eyes of his heart, small baby. But I also pray for those of us here who are in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, because we pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts, because we want to see what you're doing. So, Help us to see what you're doing, help us to hear what you're saying, and help us to have the kind of hope that Jesus challenged his disciples to have. Because the power and the glory is not in religion, it's not in the temple, it's now in, in the person of Jesus. So Jesus, we follow you. You're the king. And like we said before, we do what the king asks us to do. And we believe the king is good, we believe you're good. And we believe you have power, and we don't understand your ways. We know that. The Bible says your ways are not our ways. The disciples are hitting that all the time, and we hit that all the time. But we know you're good. We know you're powerful. And we will do, King Jesus, whatever you ask us to do. And we ask this all in your name. Uh, amen. Um, we finish every Sunday at Exodus with communion. And again, we do that because it's, the, in essence, the high point of the, the apex of what we do because what we do in communion when jesus said this is my body uh, broken for you this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins 
And then when he challenges his, he tells his disciples to eat this and drink this, and we're taking it into our bodies. So it's this symbolic yet also mystical reality of I'm inviting the spirit of Jesus inside of me. I'm inviting his body, his spirit, his presence inside of me. And uh, because I want to be the kind of person who when calamity and difficulty hits, I don't worry, I don't panic, but I let the Holy Spirit speak through me because I want to be that kind of person. So that's what we're saying when we do this. So here's what at Exodus, uh, anybody's welcome to the table. Um, I do say that if you're giving God a straight arm in some known area that God's saying to stop and you're giving God a straight arm in terms of obedience, it's your own well-being not to take. We don't chat you up or down, but I'm just kind of, but anybody else is welcome who wants more of the spirit of Jesus in your life. Um, we'll sing a few more songs. Some people come up here to offer you bread, tear off a piece, you tear it off, and then to offer you the cup and then just dip it in the cup. This is how we do it here, dip it in the cup. Most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to their seat, but it's up to you. And again, we just come up. We don't dispense our rows. You just come up as we start to sing. So let me uh, express gratitude for this, and then we'll take. Jesus, uh, we are grateful that, uh, that you gave your body, shed your blood, even within days of this passage we just read. You gave your body, uh, you shed your blood, and you gave yourself up for torture and death. But then, as Scripture says, the Father raised you from the dead. And even this, uh, the power of the resurrection that you say is now available to us, and we're grateful that you open up this new and living way for us to not just be religious people, but us to live with the spirit of the living Jesus inside of us. That's who we want to be. We want to have that kind of strength and mercy and tenderness and kindness and forgiveness and courage. And we're grateful, Jesus, that you opened that door for us. And we ask this all in uh, your name. Amen.